Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, welcome to the Monday Scramble. Uh, since it's the day before the primary, the day before the so-called Acela primaries, I'm not sure how I feel about calling them that. But anyway, since it's the day before the Acela primaries, and we are one stop here in Connecticut uh, on that uh, on that runaway train, and we're going to devote pretty much the entire show today to talking about the political condition uh, of the United States. And uh, in the final segment, we try to do this on Mondays when we can. I'm just going to kind of make the phones available to you so you can... You could do like call-in radio. That's a thing, right? Call-in radio, talk radio. I think that's what we do here. Uh, but we've got some very interesting guests for you. A, a little bit later in the show, you hear, you'll hear Jane Sanders. She's the wife of some guy named Bernie. Uh, but right now, we're going to talk to Thomas Frank, journalist, columnist for Salon, and author of most recently. See, I'm not sure how to inflect the title of this book. It's either Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People or Listen Liberal or whatever happened to the party of the people. Like, hey, stupid, you know? I'm not sure where I'm supposed to put the emphasis. How, how do you say the title of your book? It, it's the latter. It's, a uh, listen, liberal. Yeah, it's a, it, it, sh- it, it should have had an exclamation point at the end of it, both for, you know, for, for reasons of, the, of, of proper inflection, but also that really the book needs an exclamation point, you know? Right. The book is an, ex- the book is an exclamation point. The book is an point. exclamation point. Uh, that was going to be my blurb, had you asked me. This book is an exclamation <laughs> point. Um, all right, so this is an electoral season that's driven by the issue of inequality, uh, and you write a lot about that and think a lot about that. Um, so let's begin there. I, I think the first question is, what is inequality? I mean, it's not one thing, right? There isn't an inequality number that we can point to and say, well, this month's inequality, the inequality for you know April of 2016 is this, right? It's a right. set. Right. Set no, of different numbers, and it's probably a feeling that goes behind those numbers. Yeah, it's a, it's a. I, I don't even really like the word inequality because what what we're getting at there is, you know, this whole gigantic subject of how we as Americans are going to live together. You know, mm-hmm. how, how how do we interact? It incorporates everything from, or I should say, encompasses everything from like labor management relations to. You know, the uh, trends in McMansion construction, you know, to the shrinking uh, middle class, to, uh, you know, what's happened to the welfare state. All of these things go to make this up. So um, and I, many of my ideas about inequality are stolen from from good sources. Uh, you, uh, Adam Davidson, uh, in a conversation he had with my friend Mike Pesca, um, g- good sources. And so my sense of this is that when we look at, when we talk about inequality, we know that something has happened. We know that something probably started happening in the late 70s or early, yeah. or early 80s. And I yeah. think one of the big questions is, I mean, how much of it just happened because it was going to happen anyway? There was going to be more globalization of labor, the, the hard work of a low-skilled American worker, no matter what we did, no matter who was president, was just going to be worth less money. Um, tech and computers were going to get big. Uh, they were going to change the picture. I mean, some of the stuff that happened probably would happen no matter how hard we slammed on the brakes. And then some of it happened because people made certain policy choices. Yeah, I, I don't know about that, Colin. I disagree with that. I, I don't think that I don't think that uh, uh, the technology and globalization are, you know, 
features that automatically point in a certain direction. They could, I mean, these are political decisions is ultimately what I think. And um, they could just as easily have gone in the other direction, you know. The, the way we divide up the uh, the pie in this country is is a political decision, not a, not a technological one. Um, can I t- talk about trade for a second? Yeah, I know your trade. listeners want to hear about yeah. it. Yeah, this, this is one of this is one of the main subjects in Listen Liberal. Listen Liberal, uh, because uh, uh, you know trade deals are a you know, big part of the world that we live in. And they always present these trade deals to us as essentially an act of God. This is always how they're presented. You know, this is globalization. But in fact, God did—I know this is news for your listeners there in Hartford, but God did not write NAFTA. God did not write the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We know who wrote these things. Mm-hmm. It was a class of humans called lobbyists. They are very down-to-earth people, and they were acting in their own self-interest or the interest of their, of their employers when they did it. And um, that, you know, the, it, uh, one of the things that I learned when I was writing Listen Liberal is that you could write a trade agreement to benefit any group of Americans and to punish any group of Americans. And so when, when people uh, give us these trade agreements and say, well, this is just, you know, globalization, this is just God doing what, what he in his, you know, unknowable will wants to do, that's completely false. These were written by humans in order to benefit a certain class of Americans in order to punish a different class of Americans. And so, I mean, the the mask that that wore was something along the lines of that, that in fact, what's good for investors, what's good for businesses is going to ultimately be good for everybody, right? If companies, yeah, but they would they sold they would usually sell it. They wouldn't put it that way. They'd say what's good for consumers, mm-hmm. and they would also say, I mean, go back and so one of the things I do in Listen Liberal is look at the debate surrounding NAFTA, uh, and the 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 Clinton administration straight up promised us that it would increase American exports. <laughs> you know that manufacturing jobs would grow in this country as we exported things to. Uh, to Mexico more, and that the exact opposite is what happened, and they knew that was they knew that was the case at the time. Uh, but this is you know this is always how this thing works. They say it's going to be good for for, and they they don't mean it. So as we go along, as we go through the the modern history, the history that kind of starts really with what you're talking about. I mean, it seems as though at almost every point on the continuum, there's somebody making an argument somewhat comparable to the argument that Bernie Sanders is making right now. In you know, in 1980, Ted Kennedy basically made some of those same criticisms about Carter. His insurgency was probably yeah. more union-driven than than this one is now because there were more unions then. Uh, yeah. But yeah. you know, whether it's Gary Hart or Jerry Brown or what, you pick pick, pick a, an election year, and uh, and there's somebody making that case, but never very successfully. So it's sort of back to one of your other books. You know, why why doesn't that argument work? Why doesn't that argument get okay, you elected? Look, Colin, the first thing we got to do is take a step back and look at who the Democratic Party is. Because the, 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 most of your listeners are, if they even recognize my name at all, they're going to remember what's the matter with yeah. Kansas. And they're going to say, this is the guy that uh, wrote that book about conservatives. Mm-hmm. This is a guy that has spent all these years writing about conservatism. You know, and conservatism is a fascinating movement, and, and yes, and I spent many years writing about it. This is a book about Democrats and about their role in uh, inequality, their role in, in, well, their failure to do anything about inequality over the years. And after sort of surveying the history from uh, the 1970s up to the present, what I finally decided is that the the, the reason that they <laughs> they haven't done anything about inequality is because they 
they really don't care that much about inequality. We think of them as the party of the people, the party of working of the working class. That's not who they are. This is a case of mistaken identity that we have got these people wrong all along, and they've been telling us. If you read, you know, if you read their. Um, their their uh, their party magazines and their you know their manifestos and this kind of thing that's not who they're interested in they're interested in a very different group they're interested in our society's economic winners the top ten percent of the income distribution the people they call uh, professionals the uh, professional managerial class they are not interested in uh, or you know to some degree they 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 still you know talk a good game about uh, working people and that sort of thing, and they feel very sorry for them, and they think it's terrible what's happened to them. But the group that they really care about is this uh, uh, professional class, and they have all these terms of endearment for them. You've heard the term creative class. In fact, I was on your show, and we talked about it like uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, you know, the artisanal, uh, you know, the people with their artisanal tastes and everything. That's who Democrats love. That's the group they serve. That's the group they care about. That's the group that they see as the like the hero the hero class of history and that's also the group that they themselves meaning the leaders of the democratic party that's the group that they themselves are drawn from that's who they serve and and uh, this was an argument that was mounted in 2000 by Ralph Nader who basically said there was not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties anymore and he was really talking about this the thing you're talking about right now he wasn't talking about climate change or foreign policy he was talking about exactly what you're talking about right now and and at yeah. the time it seemed like a dangerous argument to make that that ultimately it did make a difference that the Bush administration. Oh yeah, uh, no, I don't. I don't think there's no difference between the parties. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I think there's a, there's very profound differences. Uh, uh, but uh, but on this issue of income inequality, no, the Democrats are not going to. They're they're. I mean, they're they're going to be slightly better than the Republicans. Maybe even significantly. Uh, better or maybe significantly worse. I mean, remember the a big part of listen liberal is concerned with the Bill Clinton administration. We're all going to have to learn to say that, by the way, the Bill Clinton administration <laughs> and and what he did on the issue of inequality. And he got things done that no Republican could ever have done. Mm-hmm. And NAFTA is just the the, the most um, prominent example. You know, the, the Republicans, as a, a point of historical fact, could not get NAFTA done. It had to be a Democrat that did it. Welfare reform is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Republicans would never have been able to do that on their own. It, took, it takes a Democrat to get that kind of thing done. Um, the, he also came very close to privatizing Social Security, and he would have been able to do it had it not been for uh, Monica Lewinsky. Um, well, we, we owe her more than we imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So d- let's assume that what's going on right now isn't just another manifestation of progressive discontent that what's going on right now, particularly because it's kind of going on in both parties in different ways. Uh, yeah. That, that well, yeah, we've reached, I think we've reached, well, we're getting close to some kind of, of tipping point. I mean, we've watched the middle class deteriorate all these years, you know, and, uh, and, and people are fed up. People have been angry about this for a long time, but there's more and more and more of them. I mean, you come out of this recession. I think a big part of that is also uh, 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 some kind of some version of hope fatigue. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were so uh, or I'm speaking for myself here and I shouldn't say we, but I was so inspired by Barack Obama in 2008. I think a big part of the country was. And we really sincerely believed that this was the Franklin Roosevelt for our generation. This was the man that was going to step up to the plate and do what needed to be done to get this economy uh, working for average people again. And instead, he, you know, more, he he 
you know, he had this fan. He did some good things, right? Let's mm-hmm. not undersell Barack Obama. But given the magnitude of the opportunity that he had, uh, he did he did very little. And in fact, inequality has worsened considerably uh, during his time in the White House. All the gains of the economic recovery have gone to that top 10 percent. And the you know the the uh, what, what do you call it the workers uh, the, the workers share of the you know increase in uh, uh, in growth has dropped to its lowest point since World War II and it's it's basically stuck there and this is under a Democrat this is while a Democrat is sitting in the White in fact a Democrat who we are assured constantly is the most liberal of all possible Democrats if not an outright you know communist or something. <laughs> Yeah, some people are assured about that. I mean, uh, <laughs> I know. No, you got to turn the dial a little bit to get right. that to get that point of view. Those I understand. Of us who, who read the work of you and your friend Mr. <laughs> Curry, we know better. So, um, I, I, so that seems to me that I mean, we you could divide it up into as many different groups as you want to, and I think the New York Times says something about how there are like there's nine groups. Um, but we, let's talk about two of them. So there's one group of people, and there might be like 80 million of them who are what I call. Permanently screwed. I actually use another word. The the, the, The highly technical uh, language here. So uh, in my notes, they're called the PF. So the permanently screwed, (laughs) these are people, these are low-skilled and low-education people. And and they've been left behind by all of the forces that you just talked about. Um, And and I think more of them are gravitating towards Trump than are gravitating towards Sanders. I could be wrong about that. But I, I think I see more of them heading towards Trump. But the question that I have for you is, are there policy fixes that can really help people who are that far behind in in uh, on an economic wave that shows no sign of of stopping its direction and momentum? Uh, yeah, of course there are. Come on, this is uh, you're, when you say uh, uh, low skilled. You mean people who who didn't go to college, basically? Yeah, basically, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's the that is the classic definition of the working class, right? And the working class in this country, uh, I mean, a big, big, big part of them considered themselves middle class when I was growing up in, mm-hmm. the, in, the, in the 1960s, in the 1970s. That's who they were. Uh, and, you know, skills are – that's just a way of, of brushing off their claims. It, it's, it's totally possible to have a society where working class people uh, are, are treated fairly and, and lead middle class lives and are paid well. Um, it, there, there are countries like that to this day. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of, of Germany. I'm thinking of Canada. Uh, I'm thinking of France. It still happens in all sorts of places. It happened in the country that I that I that I was born into. Uh, of course, it can it can happen again. You know, and you ask about policy fixes. I mean, one of the most simple and direct: let people form labor unions again. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, if you if you if you allow that to happen, if you allow people to negotiate with their boss, you don't need this sort of heavy-handed, you know, government intrusion. If you just let people negotiate with their boss, uh, things are going to be very different in this country. You're not going to hear all this stuff about how, oh, you know, the the the, the uh, you know the the hand of God has left these people behind, and there's nothing can be done for them. Oh yeah, if they get to negotiate with management, yes, things will change. So so there there there's that fix, and and. I mean, do you see in the programs of anybody? I mean, I don't even know what Donald Trump's program is, and I've been to Do- a Donald Trump rally, and I still don't know. But do you, do you, <laughs> do you see in, in, in what Sanders is offering something that helps that group of people, that group of people who are not college educated and who are really getting the short end of the stick and have been for a long time? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, Sanders is 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 very good on on. Exactly the question that I, you know, the, the issue that I just mentioned, you know, things having to do with with 
with labor unions. But you think about even about uh, Sanders sort of um, his obsessive issue uh, dealing with Wall Street. I mean, that is that is an important part of the question, too. I mean, the financialization of our economy, you know, at the, at the start of the show when we we're talking about all the different ways that you measure inequality, all mm-hmm. the things that well, one of the big ones is financialization, how much of the real economy is being swallowed up by by investment banks. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's out of control. And uh, uh, taking those banks, you know, doing what Franklin Roosevelt did to Wall Street would be an enormous help in getting our country back on a footing where we actually make things, you know, rather than, than invent financial derivatives, you know, where we sit around all day. And, and, uh, and by the way, the Democrats have a, have a lot to answer for in this department. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last decade, you know, in the, you know, I was talking earlier about Democratic Party theory and how they love the professional class. Um, and you go back and read sort of Democratic, uh, uh, you know, the, their favorite literature from the last decade. One of the groups that they would always talk about, the, one of the, the, the you know creative professions that they really admired was people that wrote uh, derivative securities mm-hmm. on Wall Street. This was a, this was a group that it, it's not a coincidence that Democrats went easy on these guys. This is a group that they identify with, and it's not like Hillary said. It's not you know Hillary Clinton is always saying. Look, just because Goldman Sachs, you know, <laughs> gives me all of this money doesn't mean that they bought me. She's exactly right. They, the Democrats love this industry for reasons of their own. This is a happy coming together of interests. It's not bribery. It is a uh, it is it is a political theory. It is ideology. They are they look at this industry and they are in love. Mm. So let's talk about an, an, another group of people who are unhappy. And those are the people who I some feel are more likely to be turning up at Bernie Sanders uh, rallies. They're, uh, we know they're predominantly young. Uh, they may be people struggling with college debt right now. These are people who I think, rather than seeking the kind of thing that you're talking about, the ability to organize and stuff like that, um, are, are seeking some kind of restructuring or reallocation of the resources. Like, give me, take some of this money away that's, you know, that's there, that's concentrated in these tiny fractal amounts uh, of the upper, upper, upper economic uh, strata. Get, get it back in the public domain somehow. Use Use it to pay for college education. Use it to pay for other stuff. Take us a little bit more in the in the Scandinavian direction. But but for the most part, they just want a little bit more, maybe a lot more, trickled yeah. back into the public sphere. Yeah. Well, look, the first thing we have to I have to point out is when I, when I talk about the, how the Democrats love the professional class, the creative class, whatever you want to call it, the definition <clears throat> of this class is uh, people with. Uh, you know, a lot of education. You know, mm-hmm. that's what that's what defines the professional class. And if you look at, you know, Democratic, uh, uh, you know, if you look at Bill Clinton, if you look at Barack Obama, these are people. Or if you look at Hillary Clinton, these are people who. Um, I mean, you can almost define their political views by their association with higher education. These are people who owe their entire life history to higher education, to their experience in you know college and graduate school, law school. Um, you know, Bill Clinton is a Rhodes Scholar. These are people that see education as the solution for everything. In mm-hmm. fact, one of the things I say in Listen Liberal is um, for every economic problem, they see an education problem. It's always a failure of us to get educated enough. Well, so now you've got a, a generation of kids that did exactly as Bill Clinton and Barack Obama told them to do. And they went out and got that degree and they borrowed heavily to get that degree and to go to the best school that they could, right? It's always about the good schools. You've mm-hmm. got to go to a good school. You've got to climb the meritocracy, the meritocratic ladder. That's the democratic way. And these kids did that. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, they are screwed, like mm-hmm. you said. 
they are screwed. They come out of college massively in debt. You know, and that's by the way they've noticed that's not a burden that our country uh, inflicted on 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 previous generations. My generation, I mean, yeah, we had to borrow a little bit. My dad's generation, it was basically free when you went to college. Uh, but these guys, no, they've basically got a mortgage. They're starting out life, you know, a hundred thousand in debt or sixty grand in debt or whatever it is. And uh, and they're what are they facing when they come out of college? They're facing you know the gig economy. Hmm. Which uh, again, Democrats love to talk about how wonderful this is. You know, it's so innovative. Uh, you know, all of this wonderful. Uh, uh, you know, all these wonderful Silicon Valley companies. You know, making life making life so so easy for everyone with the the gig economy. And what what these kids with all of this debt are realizing is that that basically the middle class dream that they thought they signed up for is now basically permanently out of reach. And they have every right to be angry about this, uh, and I mean, it, it just it makes me mad just to just to think about it. Yeah, actually, our intern Tiana Duquette is sobbing in the control room, so I hope you're happy, Tom Frank. <laughs> um, so um, let's just uh, in the time we have left here, kind of project forward here. So I mean, you know, the 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 probable scenario I think you alluded to it is that we'll have to start saying the Bill Clinton administration as opposed to the Hillary Clinton administration. So right. imagine she gets elected. Bernie Sanders comes out of this and his movement come out of this with probably more clout than progressives t- typically get out of a process like that. He either winds up as he could be a running mate or he could wind up being this incredibly. Hey, this, influ- th- wait, the New York Times yesterday or two days ago said no. Right. Yeah, probably won't. Then. But uh, or he can, be this in- <laughs> he can be this monumentally influential. No, they, did, you, did you see what they said? I mean, what, it was what fascinating. Did they, say? What did they, say? they said, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing here, but basically that, uh, that the Clinton people have looked at the Sanders movement and they realized that Sanders uh, uh, voters, once this contest is over, and we can all see where it's heading, uh, that Hillary is going to be the nominee, or that's certainly the way it looks like, that, that, that basically the Sanders supporters are going to vote for her, and so they don't feel like they have to give them anything. This is always the Clinton and Obama way of treating uh, uh, voters on the left. They've got nowhere else to go. That's always the, that's always the saying, that's always the slogan, and that's what's coming again. Which is a really bad strategy for them to say things like that. Um, be, <laughs> yeah, it be, sure is. Because, but I mean, it's also, but, but check it out. They've been doing this for years. Yeah. They've been doing this. I mean, this is what What's the Matter with Kansas was about. All these working class people who, you know, think of it as the party of Roosevelt, the party of Truman, and now they're like, they're left behind. This party offers nothing to them. And Democrats look at them and say they got nowhere else to go. Well, Colin, well, they've found somewhere else to go. Right. They have found somewhere else to go. Exactly, and and certainly it's Trump at a Game of Thrones level too. I mean, Sanders could go in I and pull, pull a Ted Kennedy in, in 1980 and basically try to blow up that convention. I mean, not physically blow it up. Well, I, 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 yeah. Do you think he'll do that? Who? No, I don't. I don't think he will. But the meaner they are about this, and the less conciliatory they are, uh, the more they they set the table for this. I guess what I'm really asking though is, let's imagine a kind of a probable scenario, which is that Bernie Sanders returns to the Senate, but like quintupled the influence or or more than that that than he ever had in his life he's going to be this kind this guy who you kind of have to listen to in the u.s senate no matter what the numbers are so does that mean anything to you in terms of what can be accomplished in in a situation like that or or is it still the same dark scenario well but let's think let's talk about the other side of the coin first so hillary clinton the way you're describing it hillary clinton will be the nominee and and if Trump is the Republican nominee, Hillary will almost certainly beat him. I mean, I don't see how. Uh, I mean, how he how he comes out ahead after insulting all of these different groups, you know, 
uh, you know, the bigotry and the intolerance. That is not the way to win the presidential election. So Hillary Clinton is president, and she's right now openly running as the candidate of complacency. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing will change. Uh, the, you know, it'll be Obama's third term, essentially, or her husband's <laughs> third term or whatever, however you want to describe it. It, it will be it'll be the same kind of democratic centrism that we've been seeing all along. And it'll, it'll continue. Uh, Wall Street money will probably go to her rather than to the Republicans. Um, you know, uh, everything will continue. But what when I say everything will continue, by the way, so you remember uh, Jonathan Alter wrote that that book about Obama's uh, the 2012 election. He called it The Center Holds. Mm-hmm. The center holds. This is yeah. the candidate of hope and change, right? right? The center holds. And the center will continue to hold with Hillary. And inequality will get worse. Everything will all, – all the things that we've been talking about in this conversation will get worse. Uh, you know, colleges will get more and more expensive. Sixty grand a year now to go to my alma mater. Uh, I'm sure it will be worse. Uh, uh, the student student debt load will be greater. Working class people will still be, you know, screwed, and they'll be saying, "Well, you know, you just didn't go to the right school, you just didn't major in the right subject, or you didn't go to college." And you know, we'll rationalize it in some different way or the same way. Everything will be worse four years from now, and then you'll have, um, then you'll have a real well, then you'll have a real contest on your hands. All right. I mean, you're talking about a recession, a, the recession of 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 oh eight and oh nine. Basically, for for most Americans, has never. Uh, has never gone away. There has never been a recovery for most Americans. And that's just going to continue. Right. You know, you just can't do this in a democracy forever. That's the David Frum point, too. This is, you know, the economy recovered, the people didn't. Hey, Thomas Frank, it's great to talk to you. The book is, I will now read it dramatically, the title, Listen, Liberal! Whatever Or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. So you do it in two different tones of voices. voices. Listen, Liberal! <laughs> Or whatever happened to the party of the people. All right. Uh, anyway, that's the book. That's Thomas Frank. Great to visit with you. Uh, we'll have you back really soon. Anytime, Colin. All right. Now, coming up, uh, we have an interview that was recorded, unfortunately, on Friday with Jane Sanders. It's still very valid and stuff, but it was certainly before Bernie Sanders got 14,000 people to show up at the New Haven Green, if that number is correct. Uh, and uh, it's also before a PPP poll came out today showing him within two points of Hillary Clinton. PPP rolls, PPP polls, that's hard to say, uh, can be debated. I mean, they're a methodology. But, you know, it shows them within two points of Hillary Clinton in the Connecticut primary, which is held tomorrow. So factor all that into your heads, and we'll be listening to Jane Sanders after this break. We're talking now to Jane Sanders. I'll just uh, give you a sense, first of all, that I'm recording this on Friday. The Bernie Sanders rally is on Sunday in New Haven, so things uh, will change a little bit by the time you hear this. But Jane Sanders, former community organizer, uh, president of two colleges and social worker, and obviously the wife of Bernie Sanders, the Democratic presidential candidate. Uh, So uh, obviously the eyes of this campaign are swinging a little bit towards Connecticut. But you've been so through so much. Uh, the, The campaign has been so many places and through so much and so much under the white hot spotlight of a presidential campaign. But I wonder also whether you feel as though the the campaign as constituted, the presidential campaign as the as 
as it is set up, is it a good way to get a message out? Is it a good way for people to make the decisions they have to make? Or is it basically this thicket of distractions in which occasionally uh, you get to say something important, you get to make an important point? I mean, sometimes from the outside, it looks like basically what this campaign exists to do is just drain the energy out of everybody involved in it uh, and and, and wear people down and and introduce this huge force field of distractions. Mm -hmm. Colin, that's a very good point. Uh, It is not. No, I don't think this is the way to choose a president. I think uh, we have the great advantage of Bernie bringing in a lot of people so that he can speak directly with them for an hour, an hour and a half at a time. We've met with a million, more than a million people. But when you look at how uh, it's set up so that the media just covers gotcha politics or whoever says the most outrageous thing um, or talks about polls and pundits instead of the issues facing the people of our country, it's not been, that's been a disappointment. The exciting part has been meeting people, the retail politics, uh, talking in cafes, talking beyond the rallies, you know, just meeting people. And they actually asked real pertinent questions, substantive questions. I think that the idea of everybody just running across the country and having primary after primary after primary doesn't make a lot of sense. I think I think other countries might have a better idea about free airtime and shorter elections and focused elections on particular stances. We're talking to Jane Sanders right now. So this is uh, getting ahead of our story, as they say, but you can't uh, have your husband run for president and not at least uh, every once in a while imagine what it would be like to hold the title that's known as First Lady. I'm not asking you what kind of drapes you're going to put in. I'm more asking you, uh, first of all, I mean, First Lady even often sounds like an almost antiquated notion uh, and almost has a slightly elitist sound to it. But you've also had the opportunity to watch uh, uh, several people, well, more than several people at this point, execute the duties of that office, put their own stamp on it, interpret the title uh, in any number of ways. What has all that left you with? I mean, if, if you wound up being First Lady, have you ever thought very much about what your issues would be or how you'd handle that particular assignment? Well, as you say, there have been so many wonderful uh, women in in that uh, place, and they've all brought their own stamp. And Michelle Obama, Laura Bush, Hillary Clinton uh, have all been wonderful. I I guess my model for my inspiration (laughs) for politics is really Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, because she was a worker. She went out and she talked to the people. She considered herself not above or below uh, anybody else, uh, but to but be one of. And so she went out and tried to amplify the voices of the people that were not being heard. Uh, my focus has always been children and families. Uh, when Bernie was mayor, I was the director of the youth office, and he he charged me with making our whole youth council to make Burlington the best place to raise children. And we've been the recipient of an, of that honor of those awards for many, many years since he was mayor. Um, all right. I talked about uh, this being a force field of distractions, and we're running out of time here, and, and time is precious for you, I know. Uh, but let me ask you some distracting questions that just to sort of flesh out who you are a little bit. Uh, what's your favorite poem? 
uh, or, Robert or Frost. Robert Frost is yeah. my favorite poet, I think, still. Uh, to Two roads diverged in a wood. I don't know the title. If that's Stopping that's by the woods on a snowy evening. So, um, and how about a favorite novel? How about uh, a novel you might pick up and, and read again sometime? Oh my gosh! Well, I loved Gone with the Wind. That mm. was one of the. Although it's uh, boy, it's a little uh, you know, it doesn't hold up that well under the scrutiny of modern sensibilities. I mean, in some absolutely ways, absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. But it gives you a sense of history. I think I am very much. I, I don't read a lot of novels. I read books about history, John Adams, The Founding Fathers. Uh, I read, actually, the the books that have been written by John Heilman and Mark Halpern on the presidency, as well as on, on, the, on the presidential campaign, mm-hmm. have been very interesting, especially now. Uh, last one of those questions. Uh, how about a movie? Is there a movie that means something to you? Uh, you know, I mean, mo- movie that means something. No, we saw love. Brooklyn recently, and yeah. we enjoyed that. Well, uh, well, of course you would. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> and uh, I remember Bernie and I really enjoyed, uh, you know, almost anything with uh, a number of the great actors that we have here. So I, I won't, I won't divulge one favorite. It's you, just too many. Yeah, you can't pick uh, favorites. We have, you have too many celebrities working for your campaign right now. <laughs> so um, very quickly, there's been a little bit more sniping back and forth. Maybe that's a, the bad uh, choice of words uh, about guns and about the gun issue between these two campaigns. How did how do you feel about the issue this has become between uh, the Clinton and Sanders camps, the, the way guns seem to be uh, such a big wedge issue? I think it's too bad because it's not really that illustrative of differences between us. Secretary Clinton had, uh, in 2008, she ran against Barack Obama and uh, was so anti-gun control that Barack Obama called her Annie Oakley. And this year she's so pro-gun control that she's trying to, she's distorting Bernie's record and trying to make him look that he is like he is a pro NRA person. He's not. He's got he's supported common sense gun control forever and that actually lost him his first election. He came out in nineteen eighty eight uh for an assault weapon ban on the sale and manufacture of assault weapons. So, you know, it's it seems so odd that she is making it a wedge issue because I think she thinks it's an advantage. I prefer that we tell the truth and say, what are the differences between them? He supports a $15 minimum wage. She supports a 12. He he opposes fracking. She supports fracking. She believes in unfettered free trade. He is a fair. He believes in fair trade. Um, he wants to have a national health care system and a free public school college and university tuition. She supports incremental change in those areas, saying there it's just too unrealistic. And there's the difference between the two candidates. He has a bold vision for the future. He does not believe status quo politics or incremental change are enough to deal with the issues facing Americans' lives, and he wants to affect real change in this country. What do you think the convention is going to be like uh, as you guys go rolling in there, both of these camps uh, go rolling in there? Do you imagine, even if you continue to trail in the delegate count, that the Sanders campaign will roll into Philadelphia and make these issues heard and, and have some kind of conversation on the floor? I mean, what are you picturing this summer? Well, I think that Bernie and Hillary have won almost the same amount of states so far. 
Uh, he's won eight of the last ten primaries and caucuses. So our, the map wasn't great at the beginning, so we're starting too late. Plus, he wasn't very well known. I think that there should be a conversation at the convention where we talk about where this country is heading, and let's look at the momentum of Bernie's campaign. I mean, that has to be taken into consideration. His ability to defeat the Republicans consistently, all polls over the last two months have shown him beating all three Republicans better by much larger margins than Secretary Clinton. In fact, she loses against some of them. So those are the things that we need to talk about. But we have to come together at the convention uh, as a Democratic Party. Well, Jane Sanders, I've kept you talking twice as long as was promised, so that means there's a campaign worker pointing at his or her watch right now and glaring <laughs> at the phone. So I'll let you go. But uh, former uh, president you. of two colleges and wife of Bernie Sanders, the Democratic presidential candidate, Jane Sanders, thanks for being with me today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. OK, bye-bye. bye-bye now. All right. In just a second, we're going to take a break and then we're going to let you call in about whatever you want to call in about, uh, including uh, your feeling that the show is drastically unfair to one candidate or another. Uh, give us a call at 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Let me just say in general, uh, if your husband's running for president and he already has a problem with the black vote, I'd say your favorite novel is Gone with the Wind. I mean, it's like a Valentine to the antebellum South. I mean, it's like, you know, borderline clan sympathizing novel. It's not a good choice. No, not at all. Anyway, um, I shouldn't be, you know, people can pick their own favorite novels. Of course they can. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back with your phone calls. Or if not, then my blather. It is a revolution. And we're back. This is the point where Kion Wolf ordinarily uh, talks about who did what. Uh, but she's not here today, so uh, I can tell you that Betsy Kaplan produced this show. Uh, Greg Hill is in there tweeting for us, at WNPR Colin. You should tweet at us, too. Tweet right at us, at WNPR Colin. Say what you want to say. We're not afraid. You're not going to hurt our feelings. Uh, Tiana Duquette is uh, manning the phones today. She's a great intern. Uh, you might hurt her, her feelings. Uh, she's already shaken enough by Thomas Frank's view of her bleak future or bleak view of her future. Uh, and uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by Clark Gable. Uh, what else do I have? Tomorrow, tomorrow, let me just tell you about tomorrow on the show. So first of all, uh, you can find out more stuff about today's show and lots of great news and stuff by going to WNPR.org. And then tomorrow, we d- we've done this a lot. We call it the Citizens Observer Program. And what we do is we invite, first of all, you to call in if you have voted in the primary. After you voted and it's one to two, you call in and you can just say what you saw and how you felt. But we're also lining up Really interesting people, not political professionals, not politicians, but people with other kinds of interests. They could be organic farmers. Uh, they could be uh, jugglers. We actually do have a, uh, a juggler, uh, a very famous award-winning juggler, not just any juggler, not, you know, uh, and poets and singers and all kinds of people, uh, clergy people. Just and We just ask them, not so much who they voted for, or but what kind of feelings swept over them uh, as they voted. What was it like to vote in Connecticut today? And, of course, if a voting machine blew up or something, we 
We certainly want to know that, too. All right. So our number, 860-275-7266. Keeping the topics pretty open for now. I've got things I'd love to talk about, but I'd also love to hear from you. We're going to start with Jim from Newtown. Hi, Jim. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I was at the Sanders rally today. It was great to hear your interview with Jane just now. And, uh, you know, I keep coming back to this point about how um, with, with the inequality that's present in the system, um, under the current criminal justice system, the fact that uh, there will be no uh, criminal record for the executives at Goldman Sachs who uh, recently had to settle for $5 billion for their illegal activity, whereas for someone who is uh, found with marijuana will carry a criminal record for the rest of their life. That level of inequality is so patently unacceptable. Uh, that's one reason uh, why I think Sanders will do well. And uh, I urge everyone to get out and vote tomorrow, whoever they're voting for, and um, may the best man win. All right. Well, thanks for your call, Jim. Yeah, I mean, obviously, what we would regard as white-collar crime has been repositioned as kind of a cost of doing business, right? I mean, you get a fine, a fine you can pay. Oops, I let him stay on there, too. A fine that you can actually manage to pay pretty easily if you're, you know, somebody at one of these huge investment companies. So, um, so yeah. Um, by the way, this the, the poll that came out today, and there are, I mean, we can talk about poll methodology and that's a subject unto itself, which we've done shows about. But it does suggest a, you know, a tightening of that race between Sanders and Clinton. Um, and turnout should favor Sanders. I mean, don't be surprised if Sanders wins tomorrow. He certainly uh, tends to do this, you know, close the gap and then outperform his poll numbers. Although this is a different kind of, you know, he does better, obviously, in open primaries. This is a closed primary. But uh, it could be a squeaker tomorrow. All right. Uh, let's talk to... Uh, oh, well, we'll talk to uh, Paul in East Hartford. Hold on. There's Paul. Hi, Paul. You're on the air. Uh, hi. Um, Colin, you ought to read, if you haven't yet, a book called Deep South by Paul Theroux. He traveled through the South, the rural areas, and uh, wrote the book in around 2012. They're back in 1812. There's a program going on right now on public radio about uh, education and the inequalities of education. Mm -hmm. It just correlates totally with this, where, yes, there are public schools in the South, and only black people go there, and they're falling apart. And meanwhile, I mean, it's incredible. What did we fight the Civil War about? What did we fight the 1860s about, the 1960s about? And I'm not a real liberal. I can't believe it. So I really urge everyone to read this book, Paul Thoreau, Deep South, because we may need another Civil War. Um, well, ideally, we hopefully we won't have another civil war. So who who does that? I mean, who in the electoral field, if I can pry into your business for a second? I mean, who do you think is speaking about this in a meaningful way? Well, I think that the only one who will actually be able to do anything is Hillary Clinton. Um, to me, they'll uh, um, just start screaming socialist over Sanders, and that'll drive enough people to vote against him although the choice on the other side is horrible. Mm. But on the other hand, uh, you've got to work with a Congress, and I think Hillary has the best chance of doing that. But these are things, I mean, we've been trying to um, give some sort of uh, racial equality in the South for years. And according to this book, and again, according to the public radio program, yep. it's, it's nowhere. I mean, without education, you don't have to begin to worry about what um, the guy from, um, who wrote the Kansas book 
worth saying about it because, I mean, our right. poorest people up here are millionaires compared to what's down there. Right, and yeah, what you're saying is that it starts well before the choice about whether to go to college or the ability to go to college. This is We're just talking about the basic public schools often falling apart uh, in some of these southern districts, and yeah, there are a lot of places where the smaller group of white families go to private schools. All right, let's go to uh, Art. Uh, hi, Art, you're on the air. Colin, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. You're great, and 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 I really appreciate all your input into things. What I'm afraid of, and I'm not a Democrat or I'm an independent, mm-hmm. but I'm looking at Connecticut, and it looks like the whole country's going Dan Malloy's way. We're so far in debt, it's crazy. I'd like to see everything change and get it over to the Republicans. And, you know, I, I'm sorry, but I went to Trump's rally in Waterbury, and I was uh, lifted. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's the way I got to go. Colin, I'd like to hear you tell me why I shouldn't vote for Trump. Uh, that that well, work for you? Uh, um, well, sure. I mean, um, first of all, I'm not going to tell you why you shouldn't vote for Trump. You should vote for whoever you want to vote for. And obviously, you don't get to vote for tomorrow at all for anybody. Uh, but, um, I mean, you know, what should concern you as a potential Trump voter is how few details he's put out about anything. Um, having listened now all the way through to one of his campaign speeches, it's almost entirely about the process of running for president. He mentions almost, uh, other than the wall, uh, that he mentions almost nothing, almost nothing that you could uh, make into some, translate into some kind of intelligible um, policy. So uh, lots of slogans and a, just a lot of talk. Listen to one of his speeches all the way through. He talks almost exclusively about what it is like to run for president uh, and what's going on with his campaign and how many crowds he gets. And, and how horrible Ted Cruz is as a human being and what the press is like. <laughs> in there somewhere might be some kernel of an idea. And then he, he says, we don't win anymore. We have to start winning again. But I don't really know exactly what that means. That would worry me if I were a potential Trump voter. But I don't want to tell you how to vote. You decide how to vote. That's not my I don't do that. Um, people have pointed out that I incorrectly tried to help um, uh, Jane Sanders out with the title of her favorite poem. It's not. It's the road not taken. Obviously, not stopped by the woods on the snowy evening. Um, so, but anyway, she's a former college president. She should know the title of her own favorite poem. But anyway, you're absolutely right. I I, I tried to help and I made it worse. Uh, all right. So here's a call from uh, John. John in Hartford. Hi, John. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, thanks for the show today. Um, I've got to say, I went to the rally yesterday, and uh, this is the Bernie Sanders, Sanders rally in for, New Haven for Sanders in, in New Haven, and. Um, you know, I really wanted to come away like just excited and, and so forth. But I, I drove down with a, a good friend of mine who's um, a, a hardcore Democrat. I've always been unaffiliated. I, I registered as a Democrat for this election to, to vote in the primary, and I'm going to proudly vote for Bernie Sanders. But I don't. I really don't see him getting the nomination, and I'm really distraught about what, you know, what what the options are. I I, I am astounded by those who who support Hillary. Who um, you know feel that they're being progressive, and but they are. It's just so cynical to say, well, she's the only one going to vote, work with Congress. I mean, please, we need to think big. We need to start to envision a world where you know my kids are going to grow up and my grandkids. And it's not the world. It's not the status quo we have now. I you know I listened to to, to Bernie's entire speech yesterday. It's a standard stump speech, and I tried to pick out and tried to listen critically and say what was not true about what he said. I couldn't find anything. 
You know, he really has policies out there. He really has ideas. Whether they'll all work, I don't know. But you know, I, I don't. I, I'm I'm just I'm really bummed out. And I and I would love for him to win tomorrow. But going into the fall, to me, the only thing I'd like to to have happen is I'd like to see him run as a third party candidate. I know that's chaotic, but <laughs> yeah. I'd like to be able to see. You really don't want that to happen. A real option. You know what? I do because I'd like to see Trump not get the nomination and have have let's have four candidates. Uh, I, you know, I, I actually I do think that one of the illustrations of this uh, campaign season is there's nothing all that great about the two party system, particularly the way that it plays out these days. And we may have a much more splintered political landscape, you know, four to eight years from now. Um, I don't want you to be bummed out. Um, so I'm going to send you a tote bag. No, actually, um, I don't even have the power to do that. No, I, I think the real question is. I mean, first of all, I don't think that Bernie Sanders will run as a third party candidate. Uh, whether or not he should, I, I think, is a matter of personal choice among us all. But but I guess the question that I have is, OK, look at Ted Kennedy in 1980. What happened? OK, so he, he actually went in and he did try to blow up the convention. It didn't work. It was a very, very bad political move on his part, uh, a big miscalculation, except that he then went on to become a senator of much more substance and consequence than he ever had been before that. So that ultimately he, his impact uh, on the Senate afterwards was much bigger than it ever would have been before. And you could make the same scenario for Bernie Sanders, that just because he's not going to be president, that doesn't mean his movement is over. It doesn't mean his influence is over. You know, one thing we've discovered just watching Barack Obama for eight years, it's hard to do stuff as president anyway. It's hard to enact a lot of the stuff you, that you might want to do. So, you know, having a Bernie Sanders, if, the, if he's your guy, you know, the fact that he doesn't get the nomination, it's not the end at all. It's been so much on what his followers do with the end. Well, I, and, and, and I agree, but I would just say, you know, and, Bernie, uh, and Barack Obama and the disappointment that I think I and so many people have had with his eight years, Barack Obama, it, it, Bernie Sanders is not Barack Obama. I, I do not see, I do, I do not see many similarities there in the way that they, they run their, their, their lives and the run, the way they've, they, their political careers have gone. But, um, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I, I think that the one thing I'd like the Democrats to do is make it more open so that there can be other, other flavors, other candidates out there. All right. I'm going um, to have to wrap you up definitely. right now just because uh, we're just flat out of time. But um, we can talk about uh, in the future about whether it needs to be more open, how it could be more open. Uh, let's keep this conversation going. Thanks to everybody who called in and the people who helped me out today.